We are basically looking at the spirit of Christmas in difficult times. I mean, we find ourselves in difficult times, the COVID environment worldwide, the various restrictions at various places. And I'm kind of each week showing you Christians in other times in history and other places in the world and not to say our problems aren't real because theirs are worse. That's not the point. The point is don't be surprised and don't think that these current troubles are going to keep us in any way from being joyful, from being able to celebrate the truth of Christmas. And Christians are doing it around the world in even more trying conditions than ours. So not to minimize our difficulties, but simply instead of focusing on the problems, let's focus on uh, the joys of, of what we have and the season that we have. So in our uh, last lesson, we, this was what we focused on. We're going through Philippians 2, 1 through 11, which is the story of the incarnation of Christ. And there's several things there that I think have lessons for us as we go through hard times. And last week, we focused on this portion of the passage. Jesus even though he was in the form of God, did not consider equality with God something to hold on to, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And so we talked last week about the lesson from this is what are we holding on to? And that was your assignment. I want you to think in your life, what are the expectations? What are the things that we hold on to that we're not really willing or it's very difficult to let go? And the example of Jesus is being in heaven, being God, and being willing to let go of all of his prerogatives, if you will. We talked about power, we talked about status, we talked about suffering, and to become human, to be born even as the weakest of humanity, to come into a hostile world, think Herod killing the babies, as a baby, completely powerless, going from the, the creator of the universe to a powerless baby. And so our lesson was really about what are we holding on to that we need to be able to let go of? Well, I wanna take an excursus here. An excursus is an academic word that just sounds better than a rabbit trail. Okay, so an excursus is an academic rabbit trail. But it's a really good rabbit trail because when I was speaking last week about Jesus becoming not just human, but a baby, weak, that spurred a question from one of our, uh, our audience members and I wanted to share it with you. It's a little off topic, but I get asked this a lot and it's really interesting. So time out, remember Philippians 2, six through seven. Now I want you to focus on the idea of Jesus becoming a baby. And here is the question. So Jesus was the lowest of lows as an infant. When he was born, did he have an infant brain and then a toddler brain, then a teenage brain? Or did he always know he was the savior? Did he know he was divine is the way theologians like to talk about it. Did he always know, but he had to hide it so as not to be killed too soon? Or was he a normal child? And then at 30, he can heal people and begins to preach and leads them to God. Great question, this is a great question. I'm wondering about the progression. 
He was born being Jesus, but did he go through normal life? Was he a toddler that said no to his mom? Was he a teenager who tells Mary that she couldn't understand what he's going through because he's raised in such a different time? You can tell this person has teenagers, okay? I, I can tell that right away. It's like, yes, I hear what you are saying. Well, so let's answer this question just because it's a timely place to do it. Um, the scripture doesn't, so I'll tell you what we know and I'll tell you what we don't, definitely don't know, but we're gonna follow some clues. Let's see what clues the scripture gives us. So first of all, the scripture doesn't address this directly. This was the source, by the way, of several early heresies. And when I use the word heresy, what I mean is teachings that were quasi-Christian, but that weren't true and were leading people astray. For example, if you've heard of the Gnostics before, G-N-O-S-T-I-C, Gnosticism was a Greek idea, Greek philosophy, think of it as kind of Greek philosophy, Greek view of the world. And some people became Christians and tried to men, you know, merge it with Gnosticism. And so for example, and it's a long story, we can't really get into it here, a very interesting story, but very long. But basically what they thought was, is that Jesus was just a man and that the Spirit of God came on him for a little while and then left him. So Jesus wasn't really divine. Well, that's, that's not what the Bible teaches. That's not what Jesus taught. And so there were a lot of things around the divinity of Jesus and did Jesus really know who he was? Was he really the Son of God? Uh, so this was early. So this is a timely question for us as well. So let's see uh, what some of the clues are. So first, I'll take you to Luke chapter two. When the angels went away from them into heaven, this is after they've appeared to the shepherds, the shepherds said to one another, turn on some highlights here, uh, let us go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, because the angels announced to them, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and they found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. When they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning the child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. So clue number one. So Mary and Joseph, Mary has already had a prophecy from an angel saying you are going to give birth to a child, basically the Messiah. So now here come these shepherds and said, a whole angels came to us and told us to come here because this baby is the one that's anointed by God. Now, so this is a clue that some people knew about Jesus' divinity. Now, it doesn't tell us anything about Jesus as the baby, but if you think about how does Jesus and when does he realize this, part of it is he's growing up with Mary and Joseph. This clue does answer an age-old question, and I don't know about you, but I'm tired of hearing it. Mary, did you know? Okay, yes, she knew. Okay, yes, you do not need to sing that anymore. I'm sorry if you like that song, but yes, Mary knew you know, that he was the Messiah. And I do love this, but Mary, it, by the way, you notice it doesn't say Joseph treasured all these things up in his heart, typical husband. You know, he's, he doesn't even remember, you know, he didn't even remember Jesus' birthday. It's like, oh, just forgot. But uh, Mary treasured all these things in her heart. And so, first of all, as Jesus grows up, it's not unreasonable to think 
that when the time is right and in whatever manner, Mary speaks to Jesus about these unusual things at his birth. Does she tell him that when he's three? Probably not, but over time, does she speak to him about the circumstances of, I mean, very unusual circumstances. There were shepherds, there were angels, all kinds of things were happening. So that's our first clue. Let me pause and what question do we have on that? Is it likely? Is it likely? Is it likely that the accounts in the gospels were told to the writers by Mary, including the episode with Simeon? Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm gonna do the episode with Simeon here in a minute, but yes, okay, so this is, gets off on another, this is a rabbit trail on top of a rabbit trail. Okay, but let's talk about it very briefly. So as you get Luke, for example, writing this, how does Luke know what was said between people? And so let me just speak for all the writers. There are two ideas, both of which are likely true, but both of which are likely true, not just one of which in my view. So first of all, does Luke know this because Mary told him? Entirely possible and probable. Does Luke know this because Mary told somebody else and Luke knew? If you remember, Luke's gospel is the one that says, I've investigated all this thoroughly and talked to the eyewitnesses. So I do think that Mary is relaying, this, very likely that Mary is relaying this to people and probably told several people, this isn't like a big secret. It is for a little while, so Herod doesn't find them, but later, this is not a secret. And so Mary probably did. The second way that the writers of the scripture know these things is the Holy Spirit tells them. I mean, they are inspired by God. They're not just good historians. You can, and I'll tell you why this has to be true. Uh, first of all, it's, it, the Bible indicates that it's, it's uh, inspired. But secondly, you can't find any four historians who will tell the same story and be anywhere near as close as the Gospels. So that's another subject for another time. But Two reasons, the Holy Spirit is giving them, remember Jesus said he will give you remembrance of all the things that have happened. So between the Spirit and between just simply people talking, eyewitnesses talking to each other is probably where these ideas come from, where these stories come from. Speaking of that, let's go on in Luke a little bit. And so when the time came for their purification, this is not long afterwards, According to the law of Moses, they brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. So they, it's a long story, but in the law of Moses, you're gonna bring your firstborn male and you're going to redeem him. So there's a sacrifice involved. So that's what they're doing here. They brought him to Jerusalem, present him to the Lord and offer sacrifice according to what it is said in the law of the Lord. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, waiting for the Messiah to come and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Messiah, Christ. Messiah is Hebrew, Christ is Greek, same thing. Uh, the Lord's Messiah. He came in the Spirit to the temple. When it said he came in the Spirit, it meant that he was compelled that the Spirit was upon him. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus 
to do the sacrifice, Simeon took the child in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant die in peace according to what you told me, your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and mother marveled at what was said about him. So, I mean, if you think about this, this is pretty odd. Some guy comes up and said, God told me I would see the Messiah and this is him. Now you can either go, well, he's really crazy or he was known in the temple as just being a godly man. And so these things, these are clues. So Mary and Joseph knew that Jesus is at least the Messiah. He's at least the anointed one of God. And so Jesus, it, it's not unreasonable to think that they're talking to Jesus as he's growing up. Let's keep going. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12, so this is the next thing we know about Jesus. So we've gone from when he was a baby to when he was 12. They went up according to custom and when the feast ended, they were returning and Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. Parents didn't know it. And so after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking questions. And everyone who heard him were amazed at his understanding. This is not a trivial thing because rabbinic reasoning and rabbinic memory is unbelievable. I mean, you, you really need to study this for a very long time. So this wasn't just Jesus won the Bible drills at his Sunday school class. This is not Jesus knew a lot of trivia out of the Bible. This is way more advanced than that. And so all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. So when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been looking for you in great distress. And he said, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? So this is the first real clue that by the time of 12, Jesus understands something at this stage that he has to be in his father's house. House. Does he know then I am literally the son of God, incarnation? Does he uh, begin to dawn on him that he's called to God's purpose? We don't know for sure, but at this point, that statement is pretty telling. That this realization that comes on Jesus comes on him pretty early. And it seems to me, now I'm gonna give you an opinion. It seems to me that as one's mind develops the ability to understand, the realization is there. Does that make sense? In other words, you could be the son of God and be an infant, but you don't have a well enough developed brain to understand that. Actually, you can be a teenager and not have a well enough developed brain to really understand that. But you begin to see this dawning in Jesus. So we're just following the clues. Now let's fast forward from 12 to 30 years old. Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John the Baptist to be baptized by him. And John said, I need to be baptized by you. Why? Because John has already seen Jesus and said, that is the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So he knows that's the boy that, that all this prophecy is about and the angels and in other words, John knows this. And so when Jesus said, answered him and said, this is fitting for us to do this, to fulfill all the prophecy and all the righteousness. So he knows at this point who he is, what he's here to do. And he understands you're right. I'm the son of God, you are a mortal. Why are you baptizing me? He said, because I'm still going to humble myself to be a human, to be obedient and to do the things that prophecy requires. 
And so then the people there saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him and a voice from heaven saying, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And from that time, Jesus began to preach saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So it appears just from the clues that we have that as Jesus' physical development allows, the knowledge of who he always has been dawns on him. I shouldn't say dawn on him, but I think you know what I mean is you can only hold ideas that your brain is physiologically capable of holding. And so it appears that by 12, he understands this. By 30, he definitely knows who he is. So that's a long-winded way of answering it, but that looks like the best way to understand how Jesus realizes who he is. Now, we're gonna leave the Bible for a minute. We're gonna get into the realm of, of total fiction. But Christians in the past have wondered about this, and some people wrote books and made up stories. For example, I'll tell you about one. None of these are inspired. None of these are even true. None of these are even written by the people they say they're written by. I mean, they're very late. But this is kind of like uh, people making up myths about Jesus uh, just to sell books. So the Infancy Gospel of Thomas wasn't written by Thomas. But the Infancy Gospel of Thomas, for example, has stories that when Jesus was little, like a toddler, he used to take clay and make it in the form of a bird and make the birds come alive. And he didn't know how he could do it, he could just do it. And then later there was a kid that was taunting him and the next day the kid dies. And they think, oh no, this Jesus is, you know, he's got some power and they try to run him out of town. All these things are made up. And the reason they're made up is because we don't know anything about that time period. But if you ever watch a History Channel video and they say astonishing new information about Jesus' early life, they're lying. You know, so the, sometimes they like those kinds of documents, but there's no scholar alive that thinks there's any veracity in any of that. So basically, it's kind of a black hole of knowledge for us. So, sorry to take so much time, but I think that's a really good question. And you see how God does things. If you're going to be God and you become flesh, you begin to do things in ways that are limited by the flesh that you're inhabiting. Does that make sense? In other words, Jesus did empty himself and he, he became human. He had stomach aches. He probably had COVID, let's face it. I mean, he basically took on all of the physical limitations and suffering that the physical body uh, comes with. So back to our main story. So we have Jesus letting go of things. Today I wanna highlight, just, the, just to put it in perspective for us, that Christians have always had difficulties and still do today. So I just wanna show you a couple of uh, places around the world. Uh, this is from 2017, but sim similar situation in North Korea. If you think about what's it like to be a Christian in North Korea, What's it like to come into the Christmas season there every year? Forget the COVID stuff. And again, I'm not trying to make us feel like, well, our problems aren't real problems. I just wanna say, don't be discouraged. Christians throughout all of history have had a lot of difficulties and Christians today around the world have a lot of difficulties. And yet Christmas is celebrated every one of these places. You see impromptu gatherings in North Korea, like the one on the left. You just see some ladies sitting down there singing for a little bit and they're gone. They don't have a church building. They definitely don't have a church building, but they, they worship and they're gone. Think about it. That would be an interesting way to practice your faith with other people. And uh, on the bottom right is a bunch of Christians being arrested uh, in North Korea. 
And so you see people that they're practicing their faith under very difficult circumstances. China, by the way, under uh, Xi Jinping, is cracking down on Christianity and some other religions, but it's really interesting there. Uh, you see a note here from the New York Times from 2014, but talking about uh, cracking down on the churches. Let me show you the next video. They have started recently bulldozing churches. This is a church that was dynamited and then bulldozed. And so China's starting to crack down on Christians and they're having to go underground, like kind of like North Korea. And so you see the government uh, coming in and just bulldozing churches. Okay, so here's the interesting question. This tells you how sick my mind is. Here's what I'm thinking. If I had a building pledge that was only half paid and the government dynamited the building, do I still have to fulfill the rest of the building pledge? Yeah, okay, that's, that's just sick, sorry. But you see the idea, imagine, just imagine that. Suppose you showed up one day and this whole place had been bulldozed. Well, here's the point I wanna make, not the sad part, the part is Christianity goes on. Christmas still happens. And so I wanna encourage us that no matter what happens, nothing physical like this, not a virus, not a government, nothing can keep Christians from practicing their faith. And then of course you have Iran. Iran is also cracking down with arrests for Christians. Um, it's just, it's pretty amazing how blatant they are towards Christianity. Some of the other Muslim countries are much more tolerant, but Iran is not very tolerant of Christians. And so I just wanted to give you an image. We'll move on into the lesson here, but I really just wanted to give you a sense of don't be discouraged by our difficulties. Just remember, we share these difficulties through time and through space with other Christians, and nothing has ever stopped Christians from celebrating the incarnation of Christ. Well, here's our basic passage in Philippians chapter two. If there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love. And then in verse five, have this mind. In other words, have the same mind. He's not saying agree with each other and be agreeable, which is another one of those nice Coke commercial type things, like can't we all just agree with each other? Well, I'll tell you the answer to that, no. As a historian, look through all the human history you want to, the answer to that is, no, we can't just agree with each other. Can't we just love one another and get along? No, we definitely cannot. If history is any teacher, humans cannot do this on their own. So what is he saying? He's not saying something humanistic like, look, I want you guys just to agree with each other. No, he's saying, I want you to agree because you're all gonna have the same mind and it's the mind that Christ had. Do you see the significance of that? Jesus Christ brings unity, not by making you kinder to each other, although you certainly will be more compassionate and kinder to each other, but that's not the basis for Christian unity. That's why you can be unified with people who are nothing like you because you have the mind of Christ. And he goes on to describe it. He said, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God something to hold on to, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, which was particularly cursed in the Jewish law. 
Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus the Messiah is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. So the passage that we had focused on was this idea of letting go, he emptied himself, and now I wanna move on, and in this lesson I wanna talk about verse eight. And when he emptied himself, being found in human form. In other words, he says, this is my destiny. This is what I chose to do. I let go of all my privilege. I let go of being equal with God and I became human. Emmanuel, God with us. And being found in human form, what did he do? Go around and order everybody about. No, he humbled himself. And how did he humble himself? By becoming obedient. Obedient. This is the king of the universe. Everybody obeys God. God does not obey me. And yet Jesus humbles himself and becomes obedient to his mission, which is death, even death on a cross. This word obey is obviously a four-letter word, but it's really a four-letter word to us, particularly as Americans. We don't like to obey people. But we kind of have a love-hate relationship to obedience. I want to look at obedience for a minute. First of all, I want you to realize we obey all the time. This, and I'm going to pick on the DMV again, I'm sorry. This is pictures of a DMV. Now, stop and think about this. Have you ever been to the DMV and thought, why in the world am I doing this? And you line up like sheep and you do what you're supposed to do. Why do you obey these rules? Because I guess you want a driver's license, right? Do you have to? No, you can go drive without a driver's license. Will you get in trouble? Yeah, probably. But the point is, you voluntarily obey. You stand in these lines. You, I mean, we really do line up, literally, and obey, become obedient to the rules. And sometimes we're okay with that. We seem to be all right with this. But sometimes, we're not okay with it. So here's an experiment. You are standing at a crosswalk and it says, do not walk. And you look down these roads and you can't see a car anywhere. I wish I could give you, I'm sorry that I didn't look up this study to give you the data, but I'm gonna give it to you out of memory. There was a study done by Nation. And here's the interesting question. You're standing at the crosswalk it says don't walk. There is not a car in sight anywhere. Do you know the nation that on average, their people stood there the longest before they crossed the road? Germany. They waited till the light turned green and said you can cross. Do you know the nation that waited the least amount of time? The people that looked this way, looked that way, saw the don't walk and took off. Like there are no cars coming. America. That's exactly right. So the interesting thing here, think about this for a minute. The interesting thing is you'll stand in line at the DMV. You won't wait at the crosswalk. Is this not playing with your head a little bit? I want to talk about the idea of obedience. I got one other thing for you. Okay, this is waiting at stoplights. And there's also been studies done about that. Now this is traffic. But have you ever been at a stoplight late at night, light turns red, stays there interminably, there is nobody coming, 
anywhere, and it's night, you can see forever because they're going to have their lights on. You know that feeling, don't you? You know that feeling. You're like, should I go ahead and go? Because it's obviously safe, but I've been trained not to go ahead and go. So then I know what you do. You look around and go, is this a trap? Is there a police officer you know, around somewhere? So raise your hand. And those of you watching online do the same. How many of you go ahead and go before the light turns green? Oh, you Americans, you guys are just total rebels. Most of you will do that. Okay, so here's what I wanna analyze about this idea of obedience, because I wanted to look into it for a minute. And this is kind of a key to us following Jesus. Here's our thing with obedience. We just want to know that our obedience is worthwhile. Think about that. That's the key to this. At the DMV, you realize, I don't wanna be here, I don't wanna be waiting, and we complain while we're in line, right? But at the end of the day, we're like, but I really need to get my driver's license renewed because I really don't wanna pay a fine when I get pulled over for running that red light, okay? So we really want it. We go, okay, I guess it's worthwhile, right? But when you're standing at the crosswalk, you look both ways, it says don't walk, you, you, you think to yourself, I know why this rule is here. This rule is here to keep people from getting hit by cars. But I know that's not even slightly possible in this circumstance, so it's no longer worthwhile to stand there. This is the way Americans think. Germans, who knows how Germans think? They just like stand there. But we go, so I'm off, you know, and boom, there we go, across the crosswalk. It all depends on whether or not it's worthwhile. By the way, if I can make a mildly political comment here, this is why people are so enraged about mask wearing. It's this psychological trait of Americans. Americans, by and large, know that if I'm in an elevator with five other people who are coughing and look like they're running a fever, yes, I will wear my mask, right? I'm exaggerating, but you get my point. This is worthwhile. But if you live in certain parts of the country and you wanna go out on a walk, just you, nobody in a mile, and you are supposed to wear a mask, what do you think the odds are that you're actually gonna wear that mask? Yeah, apparently you guys are all taking it off and run the red light, right? My point is, at that point you realize the purpose, you can, it's no longer worthwhile, is it? Because the purpose is absurd in that circumstance. There's, it's not worthwhile to you. So it shouldn't shock anybody when you see in a lot of states, I'm just pointing this out, this is psychology. In, in a lot of states in the United States are having trouble with mask compliance, duh. I mean, this is just the way we are. So obedience, I wanna come back to this idea of obedience. And so in Jesus, we'll go back to our verse. He humbled himself and became obedient even to the point of death death on the cross. So he let go of that privilege. And here's the interesting question. Was it worthwhile? Well, it wasn't to Jesus. I mean, in a very strict sense. In other words, would Jesus' life get better by becoming human and dying on a cross? Well, no, it's kind of hard to get better than what he already had. But yours would, right? God so loved the world. He so loved you even, as Romans 5 says, even when you were a rebel, even when you were a sinner, he still loved you enough 
to do this anyway for your sake, not for his sake. So was it worthwhile? Yes, it was worthwhile. In Garden of Gethsemane, some would argue and say, well, it looks like he has doubts. He never has any doubts about the cross. He just says, is there any other way? In other words, yes, I love these uh, creatures and we're gonna redeem them, but is there another way? And God said no, and so he was obedient. Went to the cross, suffered, died for us. And so there's an interesting lesson in there about this being worthwhile. Because I think sometimes in our lives when we suffer or have difficulties in our, our faith or in our life and we think, God, why is this happening to me? One of the reasons is because we don't have a clear sense of it being worthwhile. Now, I'm not trying to say that our faith is merely a function of psychology. Don't read that into it. But I really do think we're wired you know, to say, is it worthwhile? I mean, I'm, I'm willing to obey, but it really helps me to know there's a point to this. Am I just standing at the crosswalk till it turns green and there's never gonna be a car here? I mean, one of those kinds of things. So here's a thought experiment that I want you to have. And I'm not telling you this is really what happens, but I hope that this will give you an insight into how we should think about obedience even when we don't see the outcome. So let's just suppose for a minute that God said to you, I want you to agree to get terminal cancer and you will die, it will be difficult and you'll die in a few months and it will be very hard. But I want to assure you that if you do, then there are going to be 500 people in the country who will live because of what you went through. Now, don't raise your hands on this because I don't want to know who says no to this. Would you do that? I say you probably would. Make up the numbers. You get the idea of the thought experiment. If God said, this is how this is going to turn out, are you willing to be obedient to these circumstances? They're going to be very bad. I think you would say yes. Certainly, if you just raise the stakes up, you would definitely say yes. Why would you say yes? Because it's worthwhile. You'd say, well, that isn't going to help me, but maybe it's going to help my family. And maybe it does. Maybe it's going to help 500 other people. Maybe people do these kinds of things a lot. It's called altruism. Or it's called being faithful even when you don't get anything out of it. The Apostle Paul is a great example of this. If you remember when the Apostle Paul became a Christian, he goes to see this guy Ananias. He's still blind. He's like, oh, man, my world's been turned upside down. You know, Jesus has literally turned my world upside down. And God says to Ananias, I need you to tell him how much he must suffer for my name. And he didn't mean I'm mad at you and I'm gonna make you have a hard life. He said, I just want you to let him know you're gonna go through unbelievable hardships. And if you know anything about the Apostle Paul, it's like, whoa, that was not a good job, okay? And yet he does it joyfully, why? Because God assured him, I will make all this worthwhile. Does that make sense? And I think if God said that to you and me, we'd say, whatever you need done, I'll do. I think that's what we would say as sons and daughters of God. He said, will you be willing to do this to further my plans? And I'm gonna do this and this. And I'd say, I'm your guy. You know, whatever, whatever you need done, I, I've surrendered to you. I've said, you're the Lord of my life. Everything I have is yours, including my body. You do what you want done. I think we would all say that. Here's the problem. God doesn't come to us 
and say, look, I'm gonna tell you exactly how it all turns out. We walk by faith, not by sight. And therein lies the interesting twist to this. If we have knowledge of how it's all gonna turn out, it's a lot easier for us to humble ourselves and become obedient. But God says, trust me, Romans 8, 28, in all things I work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. The question comes in our difficulties, do you trust God that this is worthwhile? That to me is a game changer. It's a perspective changer. Because the only difference between God asking me to do this, saying, go through a COVID situation and some real heartache and hardship, lose some people that are uh, beloved to you, uh, you know, have some difficult situations. If God said, Terry, you need to do this and look what's gonna come out of it, I'd say, I'm your man, I, I'm, I literally am your man. You tell me, I'll do it. The only difference is, I just don't know what that is. The question is, do I trust God? that it's worthwhile. Does that make sense to you? I really want you to think about obedience in that way because all of a sudden, for me, it just makes all the difference. Like the only difference between God telling me that and me saying yes is he just said, trust me. So why won't I say yes to that? Does that make sense? And you see that with Jesus. You see this idea of humbling himself and becoming obedient because he trusts God's outcome in what's gonna happen. So two lessons out of this. The first lesson is this, is that in any circumstance where there are difficulties and you're wondering, why is this happening to me? The weight of everything in the New Testament, everything in the whole Bible would say this to you. Trust that God has a purpose. Trust that God works everything for good. And trust that if God told you how this turns out, you would do it. There's a saying that if you knew what God knew and you could see what God sees, you would do what God does. And I believe that's true. Twist that, twist that just a little bit and say this, if you knew how your life events turned out, you would humble yourself and obey with joy and contentment knowing how things would turn out. Does that make sense? That's the challenge. That's the heart of this lesson from Jesus to me is simply the only difference between grumbling and wondering and joyfully enduring, which is what the Bible talks about, is whether or not you trust that there's, it's worthwhile, that God makes this purposeful. And he is trustworthy. He will make it purposeful. The second thing, first is trusting God. The second is humbling ourselves to circumstances beyond our control. Marty just finished a series on this serenity prayer. Here's the short version from AA. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change things I can, and wisdom to know the difference. Grant me the serenity to accept things I cannot change. There is a sense of humility that is trusting God, that I'm gonna humble myself and say, I don't see the end of this road, but God does, and you know what? I trust that this is worthwhile. And the second element of humility is simply saying, I can't control these circumstances. I will become obedient to these circumstances. And what do I mean when I say become obedient? There's a difference between, I learned this really early in marriage. 
becoming obedient to circumstances. You're, every man in here is gonna totally understand this. So been married a little over 30 years. And so for the first 29, this is how I thought. Uh, I'm a slow learner. Your wife says, we wanna go do something and you don't wanna do it. And so you grumble and you complain and you go and you grumble and you complain while you're there. And then you come home and your wife is mad at you. And after a certain period of time, you realize, okay, this makes no sense. I didn't wanna go and I had to go and I got no brownie points for it whatsoever, right? My wife is still mad at me too. It's like, I got the worst of both worlds here, right? So then you wise up and you say, no, I don't wanna go, but if I'm going to go, I'm gonna be in a good mood. So now I come home and I go, I had to go and I didn't want to and I had a horrible time, but my wife is happy with me now. And you go, that's a win, right? You guys have been there, done that. So the point is, if you have circumstances you can't control, humble yourself and be obedient to the circumstances. You can go through this Christian life grumbling to God about everything that's happening because I don't trust that it's gonna be worthwhile. But if I trust it's worthwhile, it really changes my attitude, doesn't it? And the second thing is God says, you know, you can grumble all you want, but you can't change this. So why don't you just become obedient to the circumstances and accept it? Does that make sense? Those are the two keys, I think, for us to emulate Christ, is trusting that God has a purpose, that he makes circumstances worthwhile. And secondly, when you get to circumstances that you can't do anything about, then be obedient to the circumstances. Jesus didn't want to die on the cross. Jesus wanted to redeem you and me, but in the Garden of Gethsemane he says, is this really the only way? And God says, this is the only way. And so he becomes obedient to these circumstances. So I just want you to think about that when you're in difficulty, trusting God that it's worthwhile, becoming obedient to the circumstances. And that's how you get to this. So I'm fast forwarding just a little bit from Philippians 2 and we'll pause our story there. There's one more piece, one more lesson to be learned. The first is let go of your expectations. The second is have the same mind that Christ did in humbling himself and becoming obedient to circumstances that needed to be this way and trust in God that he makes it all worthwhile. But this is Paul being in that situation. The Apostle Paul is in jail when he writes this. The Apostle Paul has had a very, very difficult ministry, extremely successful. And when I say successful, I don't mean he's jetting around. I don't mean that he's a celebrity pastor. What I mean is thousands, hundreds of thousands of people are trusting in the gospel. But Paul has a very hard life. He's in jail, he's been left for dead, he's been shipwrecked three times, he's been beaten more times than he can remember and run out of town. So the, the ministry is successful, God's making this worthwhile, but he's suffering a lot of difficulties. But listen to what he says. He says, I'm not really in need. In other words, I'm not holding on to anything. I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of placing plenty or not enough, abundance or need. I can do everything through the one who strengthens me. What is he saying? He says, there are circumstances that I cannot control. I'm going to get beaten. 
by the authorities. The Jews are gonna try to kill me. I can't change that, but I can obey the circumstances and just keep preaching anyway. He said, I know what it is to be hungry and naked and cold. He, he relays this. You know, he, he doesn't have a home. He's not traveling in a motor home. He's sleeping outside. He says, I know what it's like to have hard times and I keep preaching. And I know what it's good to have plenty to eat and I keep preaching. He trusted that God made all these efforts worthwhile. And he trusted that when he gets to heaven, and this is gonna be true for you and me, we're gonna to get to heaven and we're gonna look back at our difficulties and God's gonna say, you see, wasn't that worthwhile? And we're gonna go, oh, definitely. I wish I hadn't complained so much. If only I knew then what I know now. Well, trust now that it's going to work out that way and submit ourselves to the circumstances. That's how Paul, that is the secret of Paul being able to say this. Paul didn't see the future any better than you and I did. Paul had a harder life in many ways than you and I have. And yet Paul continued to be faithful simply because he could be content trusting in God and humbling himself to circumstances that he couldn't change. You really don't see Paul, by the way, this is one of my interesting things about Paul. So the letter to the Philippians opens up, he's in jail and he said, hey, you guys know I'm in jail, but I gotta tell you some cool stuff. The guards here, I think they're gonna become Christians. I'm like, are you kidding me? You know how I would start that letter? Hi, this is Terry, I'm in prison. Would you guys please send me a good lawyer? And can we get some bail money here really quickly? Paul never talks to them about changing his circumstances. Isn't that interesting what he doesn't say? Because he knows if he said, hey, collect a bunch of money, bribe some officials, and this is the way it worked, bribe some officials and I'm out of here. But he doesn't try to change these circumstances. He trusts that, okay, this is probably going the way God wants it to go. And so as long as I'm here, I'm gonna preach to these guys. And so the point is he, he doesn't really push against his circumstances. He humbles himself to things he can't change. And that's also what he teaches us as well. He says, there are things in life that you can't change. Humble yourself to that situation because you can be faithful in any circumstance whatsoever. So we kind of summarize this just a little bit. This passage, I think, is, is one of the key ideas of having the mind of Christ. And one of the keys to that is that Jesus humbled himself, we do the same. It's trusting God that it's all worthwhile. And the second thing is that not only do you trust him, we submit to the circumstances. I wanna tell you one other interesting observation. Uh, Doug Wilson, some of you may know Doug Wilson, some of you may not, and it doesn't matter, but he had a really good observation for you and me about this. And as we go into Christmas time, and Christmas in America is a very consumeristic event. I mean, not so much for us. We understand, we, we too consume, we too give gifts, but that's not the heart of Christmas for us. You know, we don't need gifts to have Christmas. You know, we don't need a lot of things to have Christmas. But one of the things that we are susceptible to is this. When someone is abased and hungry and suffering need, the carnal response is to drive toward abundance. If only I had more, if only I could get out of this place, if only. And that's true. If you think about it, circumstances where we are struggling or suffering, we try to fix it. And so he says, sometimes that means if only I had more money, if only I had this, it would get better. But listen to this, but by the same token, 
when someone is abounding and is full and has both their hands full, there's a strong temptation to drive towards some kind of minimalism. If only we could simplify, if only we could offload some of these responsibilities. Suffering comes in two different forms. Suffering comes from not, and this is what Paul says in 411, I know what it is to abound and I know what it is to have not much. It's actually a challenge to us to not have what we think is enough. And so we try to get more to solve that problem. But it's also a challenge, and many of us in America really face this challenge more. It's also a challenge to abound, to have a lot. Because all of a sudden, your things start to own you, and you become really stressed, and you got a lot to do, and you got to keep up this job so you can keep up that mortgage, and here you are standing in the line at the DMV wasting time. You know, so basically, there is a, a struggle to having a lot, and Wilson puts his finger on it. If you go out and look at the self-help section, there are as many books about how to handle the stress of having a lot of stuff as there are books about how to get more stuff. Watch and see, look at the self-help section. A lot of it is how to simplify your life, how to organize your life, how to use your time better, how to have better habits, how to say no to something. In other words, both ends of this spectrum are difficult for us, but listen to what he says about this. And this is Philippians 4.11. But the directive given to us in this passage is that we are not to try to fix our discontents with stuff, whether by getting more of it or whether by unloading all of it. You can't fix the problem of contentment by getting more money and you can't fix the problem of contentment by getting less of it either. We are charged to drive towards contentment, which is not determined by how much money is in the bank Rather, it is a matter of how much trust is in the heart. That is a phrase to remember. Doug Wilson has a way with words. Contentment is not driven by how much money is in the bank. It's driven by how much trust is in the heart. Contentment is a function of relationship and not a function of wealth. Or put another way, it is a function of spiritual wealth. If you think about it, people that have a lot of money in our culture are not statistically more contented than people that don't. And I know that, yeah, do they have fewer problems? They have way fewer of some kinds of problems. I'm not, I'm not getting into, would you like to have more money or would you like to not have money? The, uh, the point I'm trying to make is don't kid yourself. There are problems no matter what, where you are on this scale. Philippians 4.11, contentment can't be solved, as he says, by your bank account. If, I've always used to say in business, and I still say this, if you can solve your problem by writing a check, you don't have a real problem. I mean, you need more money, but you don't have a real difficult problem. If we could solve Middle East peace by writing a check, it would already be done, wouldn't it? The hard problems in life can't be solved by writing a check. Contentment can't be gained by either having money or simplifying my life by getting rid of a bunch of stuff. The key to this is trust. And so that's what I wanna leave you with in this lesson. This is the second piece. The first is what do you need to let go of? And the second is this is a trust issue. This is an obedience issue. And this week I want you to think about when you face circumstances, you get in a situation that's not what you want. Ask yourself this, what if I trusted that if God and I were standing in heaven at the end of the day, I'd look back at this and go, you were right. 
I never saw it coming, but that was all worthwhile. How would I act differently if I thought that, if I trusted that? And secondly, if I can't do anything about this circumstance, embrace it, don't complain about it. So that's your assignment this week. So as you're out there standing in line at the DMV, uh, standing in line six feet apart, a mile long to buy something that you desperately need to get for Christmas, right? I want you to think about this idea. When you're in circumstances that aren't what you want, it's about trust and it's about obedience, just like it was with Jesus. Okay, next time we'll be streaming only, but we're gonna wrap all of this up and we're going to talk about what is the other side of difficulties. What does it look like to overcome the difficulties when you put these things into effect. So I'll see you guys next week. Thanks.